You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm doing all right. You know, the school year's about to start for me. I know a lot of teachers are already in their classrooms working away and, and students or all over the country have started. It's an exciting time. That's crazy. And I guess you teach teachers, which is great because I don't remember ever talking about the first like week of school. That was never a thing. Yeah, it's the beginning of the school year is so important. I think most teachers really realize that a lot of teachers, you know, uh, think about that. And uh, we've got to do a better job in teacher ed for doing it. One book a lot of teacher educators use is, is Harry Wong's The First Days of School. It's kind of this famous book that's been used for years. It's on my bookshelf um, somewhere. Yeah, it's it's used a lot. I mean, it's kind of a goofy book in a lot of ways, too. And some of the advice it gives about research-based stuff is I, you know, not really research, kind of pseudo research. But the thing that the book does is it gets people to think about the purpose and what they're doing on those first days of school. And I think that's really important. I think a lot of good teachers kind of intuitively know that they have to do that and have figured that out over the years through trial and error. So there's a lot of teachers that could write their own first day of school books that probably would do even a better job of, of explaining how to get the school year started. When we were th- th- talking about this beforehand, we thought that it might be fun not just to have one person, but to have like multiple perspectives of people to come on and talk about the first five days. Maybe even an entire panel of people. Oh my goodness. And we totally <laughs> have a panel today made up of some of the greatest people that I know. We have Laura Vago, um, a teacher from Massachusetts. Jess Rosenthal, another teacher from Massachusetts. You're never going to guess where the next one's from. Jen Mayo. She's from Massachusetts. And Quinn Rollins, who is on episode, like, two? Not episode. He was, he was later than that, but it was early on, right? I think it was. Let's have uh, people introduce themselves, tell them where you're from, uh, a little bit about yourself. And Laura Vega, why don't you start us off? All right. My name is Laura Vega. I am just about to begin my 10th year of teaching. I've taught a couple years of math, but most of them have been teaching middle school science. I'm originally from Philadelphia, but now I teach in Alden, which is a small city just north of Boston. It's actually a, um, we get a lot of immigrant students, so we are a gateway city. Thanks, Laura. You're welcome. Jess Rosenthal, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Jess Rosenthal. I teach second grade in Stoughton, Massachusetts, which is a community about 30-ish miles south of Boston. I am also going into my 10th year teaching, and I've taught second grade most of my years teaching, although I did spend two years teaching fourth grade as well. That's a big jump. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Mayo, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right, so I'm Jen Mayo. I teach uh, seventh grade English in Groton Dunstable. Um, I've always taught seventh grade. I'm entering my seventh year of teaching. Um, In addition to teaching, I am also my district's mentor and induction program coordinator so I work with all the new hires and the new teachers in the district and I we finished our first day of orientation today and we talked a lot about the first 
couple days of school and what needs to get done. Um, and I'm also an English curriculum coordinator for my middle school. And the, the four of us are actually on a, uh, the Massachusetts Teacher Association new member committee where we talk to, we do presentations to teachers in their first five years. Um, so I'm really thrilled to have them on. Quinn, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself too? So my name is Quinn Rollins and I am a, uh, I'm in Utah. I'm not in Massachusetts, but I, uh, I taught seventh grade for 10 years. I'm a history teacher for the last few years. I have been, uh, the social studies curriculum specialist for my school district. And, uh, last spring, um, I had a book published called play like a pirate engage students with toys, games, and comics. And, uh, I think that's, that's it. So you said something the other day, Quinn, I think it was on Facebook or Twitter. I'm not sure what you said. Don't waste your time with your first day with the syllabus. Do something. I, I forget exactly what you said, but it was like, Oh, that's really interesting. Well, just, just do something more. I, I have two sons who, who are in junior high and high school. And if they come home and I say, what did you do today on the first day of school? And they don't know, or they're depressed by that day, then I think we're doing something wrong. That sounds pretty reasonable. So is Michael, is this a good time for everybody just kind of even start to tell us like, what is your, not what do you do? We'll get to that in a minute, but what is your purpose on the first few days of school? Cause it seems like if the kids are De leaving depressed. Um, hopefully no one has that purpose of depressing children <laughs> on the first day of school. So, terrible. so can, can, um, our guests tell us what, what is your overall purpose that you approach those first few days of school with? I think in seventh grade English, my purpose has always been to, you know, show my students and have them engage with me about the importance of reading and writing. So I'll do things that, get them involved in, you know, looking at my classroom library. I will, you know, talk up books that I read over the summer, but really it's it's setting that purpose of how important reading and writing are. I do a combination of establishing a classroom culture, establishing the routines, the kind of where do I find stuff in Ms. Vago's class? Who is Ms. Vago? You know, what how do we how do we actually make the things happen that need to happen outside of the content in order for the content to actually happen. I do a combination of that and getting into the content itself. What is science? Spent a lot of time thinking about science, not just as the noun of all of the knowledge that people have gained over time, but also the action, the verb of what it means to actually do science. I love that you delve right into that because I often talk to my pre-service teachers about how I took classes where I never even understood the point of any of it, like the entire class or the area of study. And so I love that idea of, of thinking about doing science. What is the purpose of science in the class? Mm -hmm. I do surveys and things where they kind of are presented with concepts that maybe go against what they think of as science or what they think of as okay in science. And it turns out that it is okay or things that they haven't thought of before. So I try to, uh, take down some of their pre preconceived notions a little bit. To kind of bounce off what Laura was saying about establishing routines and whatnot, I think as an elementary school teacher, I kind of have a little different perspective. My students don't go from class to class throughout the day. They're my 20 to 25 students that I have all day, every day, 180 <laughs> days a year. So when they come in, 
those first few days, it's really important for me to establish, first off, a classroom community. I want everyone to feel safe and welcomed and appreciative of each other, myself. Uh, So that's really important to establish within those first few days. And then because they are seven and eight, just establishing those routines that are going to once, once we get them, which takes a while, will be very beneficial as we go throughout the rest of the year. That's fascinating because when I have my students, you know, the first day I have them for like a half hour, you have them for an entire day. Yes. <laughs> and believe me, we need that entire day to establish a lot of those things. We need several of those days. <laughs> I wonder if high school teachers could take a few cues from elementary teachers about establishing routines better. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, I definitely heard people suggest that even the the small things we do every day from from turning in papers to getting in small groups, that those routines should could be more efficiently managed if we gave more attention to how we want to do those things early in the year. But I also I don't know, I have mixed feelings about about over prescribing, you know, like the daily activities and making classroom actions too routinized. I don't know. What what do you think, Quinn? I, I agree with Laura that you need to have a combination of things in your classroom on in that first few days. Uh, you want to introduce them to your curriculum, to your content. You you need to build your classroom climate and culture. And, and I do think you need to be laying out those those rules, the, the things that are going to help them, the procedures that will help them through your class. I do think at the secondary level uh, with middle school or high school, if those kids have five teachers or eight teachers throughout the day, it's going to be, you know, I remember what I did in Mrs. Jones' class. I don't quite remember how I sharpened a pencil in your class. And some teachers are really strict on things. Others aren't. And I think we need to kind of shepherd them through that process. I think it's also really important um, as a secondary teacher. I work on a team of teachers, so we try to make our routines as close as, as the same as possible. So we all have something for them mm-hmm. to do when they walk in the classroom. So it's not completely different. And I understand that that's probably more difficult to do at like the high school level, but definitely middle school, if you can work with the team and say, all right, you know, what are our big key procedures that we want them to be able to do? Can we keep them very similar um, from class to class so that the students aren't like, okay, I know I do this when I walk into this classroom, but I do something completely different when I walk into Miss Mayo's room. And keeping it really similar for them makes that shift and that transition much easier for them. I think that's a great suggestion. And I have a, 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 I think, and by the way, I do think high school teachers could do a better job of coordinating some basic ideas about things they want done. And I think they could come to some common agreement. Quinn, going back to one thing you said about about the rules in a classroom, I, I'm kind of curious to everyone. I, I see school sometimes as being a place where students get practice in what we want them to become, you know, citizens in a democracy. I'm a social studies person, so that's always in the back of my mind. Does any, Do most people have rules set or is there some level of also developing um, rules along with students. Um, I taught government, so we made our own class constitution, and I put it on old parched paper and laminated it and <laughs> signed it and put it on the wall. Um, but I loved it because it was actually when I did that, it we developed it together, and there was like literally no complaining about the rules we made because they got to make them. You know what I mean? It wasn't arbitrary. I wasn't putting things on them. Do, does anyone kind of involve students in that process, or is that? not possible in certain classrooms or situations. This is Laura. The background that I've come from was where that that sort of idea of building the the rules together was emphasized. 
and I've kind of tried it, but I've also I've I've moved away from it more than anything. I don't know. Part of it, my classroom is is unwieldy. I have three rows of lab tables that don't move, so it's difficult to get kids in groups and whatnot, and so on and so forth. It's uncomfortable. Also, the structure, the structure of my school year is such that I have so little time to fit in more standards than I have time to teach that it's something that I've, I've, I've decided is less of a priority in terms of actually doing the science that we need to do. And I'll go over procedures that I think are the most key at the beginning of the school year, but it's more procedures like how does this happen in the room kind of thing. I don't go over solid rules quite as much because I think at the by the time they get to seventh grade, they really do have an idea of what's expected of them while they're in school. And it just kind of gets reinforced by action and by, by what I call them on and don't call them on during the year. I think I go into the year having two set rules in my head, be respectful and be safe. And I have students kind of generating groups, you know, what are some classroom rules that you think that we should have? And they, you know, come up with like, don't throw things and, you know, do your best work and whatever else they come up with. And then we kind of look at it and say, can we simplify them? Can we sort them into categories? You know, what, you know, group them so that they're alike. And we go over the definition of respect and what they want to define that as. And we end up realizing that all of the classroom rules we would come up with anyway land underneath be respectful and be safe. And then that ends up being our two classroom rules. I, I love the idea of having students have a voice in, in making the rules. However, I never did that. It was always these are the rules and there are 210 of you every day. And I I emphasize there could be some flexibility. Like if there was a rule that didn't work for them, then let's talk about it. But they're also at their general rules and they're, they're, they're easy to follow. You know, if, if they're, they aren't doing that by seventh grade, then there are bigger problems. You know, when I made rules and students had a little bit of a voice in doing so, um, I kind of came across the same thing, like being respectful, be safe. You can kind of get your students to generally agree to go to that place with all their rules um, just by asking some good like Socratic questions about what they come up with. Um, you know, even when they would come up with silly stuff like, you know, we should have no homework, which really wasn't doable for our AP government class. I think no homework is an interesting discussion we should have as educators, but wasn't doable for our class. You know, I just would ask them, like, do you guys find, is it an important priority to pass the AP test? And enough of them said yes, that we threw that rule out. So we, I usually got them to the same place I was going to go. So it's kind of fun. Their voice often didn't end up being that different from my voice. I find I do something similar as well, kind of guiding my second graders towards some general rules. Um, I do an activity with them to start off, which I can't sadly take credit for. I found it online, I'll confess. Um, but I give my students, I put them in groups and I give them a deck of cards and a dice and say, okay, play the game. And then I let them do that for a few minutes and then they start getting frustrated with me because they don't know what game they're playing. They don't know what the rules are. So after a few minutes of frustration, I kind of stop them and then we back up and I say, okay, so you needed to know the rules in order to play the game. And once they establish that, then we transition our conversation to rules for the classroom and why it's just, just as it's important to have rules in a game, you also need some rules for your classroom. Um, so then we'll have that general discussion and have the students come up with a list of what are some rules they've had in the past, what 
do they think we should have in class? And then I'll guide them to some general rules. It's very quick on how, you know, don't hit, don't punch, don't kick, don't spit in someone's face can easily transition to keep your hands to yourself or be respectful of others. Um, So that way we'll come up with a list of three or four kind of general rules that kind of are broad and cover all the lists that they come up with. And then um, similar to what a few other people have said, I actually do have my students, as young as they are, sign off on it contract style. So they understand that they are agreeing to follow the rules we've generated together. Just for everyone out there, I would like for don't spit in someone's face to be a rule that applies to wherever I go inside or outside of schools. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Fair. (laughs) And another thought, if I might share it really quickly, is the school where I work, we're a gateway community. We get a lot of kids coming from a lot of different cultural backgrounds, and that can that can create some interesting sort of challenges when it comes to authority of adults uh, within the classroom, where they may be coming from cultures where the adult is the authority, and if an adult doesn't come into a position acting as an authority, it gets taken advantage of. And so I have a tendency... Part of the reason that I don't that I that I I'm more likely to provide the rules to my students is to create that authoritative presence in the classroom from day one. It gives me that ability to have that that presence. And what it does is then I can I can allow the student voices to be built in as we go through the school year. So it, it allows them to, to start to understand that they can have a voice, that they can think for themselves, that they can have that kind of freedom, but also to match the cultures from which they are already coming. And I think one thing I'd point out and have this discussion with teachers is there's also a difference between authoritative and authoritarian. Um, like authoritarian is like, uh, we're doing everything my way. You will be quiet. This is, it's, you know, there's like a meanness to it. And I feel like authoritative is like, hey, this is what we're doing. I love you, but this is what we're doing. You know what I mean? Like, I guess I see a difference. And I think a lot of great teachers like inherently are able to do that. And I'm sure that's kind of what you're referencing is, is being able to just set real clear expectations for what we're doing. And the students know that you're in charge. And I know my first year, I struggled with that because I think I would be like, hey, can you put that away? And some students would interpret that as, oh, this teacher's asking me questions. I get a, cho- <laughs> I get a choice in putting this away. No, I cannot put it away. And so I, I totally think that's important advice about being direct um, with students about what you expect. Too often, I think we're not clear enough. Yeah, it's saying, I'm the adult. I'm going to give you some structure. I'm going to make it safe in here for you. And as we go, when we when we start to get to know each other better, I'm going to let you out and let you shine, too. Well, and I, I think that's important about making sure it's a safe space for them. The, uh, and I think some of that comes to, to classroom climate and culture. So with with science, it might be like you're physically safe. Um, but with with me, with social studies, I let them know in advance, you know, we're going to be talking about different cultures, different religions, different different ethnicities. And you're you're all coming from different places. And and um, you need to be respectful of that. And, and we're going to work through some of these really complicated things together, but it's going to be in a safe way. And they can trust me and I can trust them to be respectful. So with that, I think now might be a good time for people to tell what their first five days looks like in their classroom. Uh, and so we can see how we build, you know, our safety, you know, whether it again be safety and um, physical safety or emotional safety. I, I can start. I, I was just talking, but I'll continue. Uh, in my first few days, I, uh, 
I want to introduce my my curriculum to them, which is history. It was it's a, a state history class, and so my very first day we talk about why they're there, why how they got there. You know, Utah is a relatively young state compared to, say, Massachusetts, and so a lot of them know exactly why they came, even though even if it was a hundred years ago. So I want them to know that part of the class is going to be about them. And so they go and they talk to their family and find out why their family came to Utah. And, you know, it might be education. It might be for job. It might be just their in Utah, their religion. But uh, they, they know that part of my course is going to be about them and they can see when their family entered into the history we're going to be talking about all year. Uh, one of my lessons in that first week is about stereotypes and sort of introducing some academic vocabulary that we're going to be using throughout the year. And uh, I want them to be able to recognize stereotypes, both in my curriculum, but also in the school. I use school examples of stereotypes. And uh, one of the saddest things is when we talk about teacher stereotypes, one of the things that always comes up is that teachers hate kids. And so we, we talk about that and their impression of teachers and, and how teachers can work to overcome that. And then another lesson I have is they, uh, they design their own superheroes and just giving them as many avenues as possible to express themselves. And that helps me as a teacher get to know them, but it also helps them sort of get to know each other. And if uh, my school is the 789 school, and so they were coming from different elementary schools and getting mixed together with strangers for the first time. And uh, to me, it's important that they get to know each other as much as it is to get to know me. My first day of school, I spend on, you know, the procedures and syllabus type of thing. I guess Quinn might find that disappointing. But uh, <laughs> I, um, I do a lot of that just kind of, hey, I do, you know, this is what you're going to learn. This is how my class goes. And then this is me. And I tell them about myself. I, I have a letter that I have kind of a standard letter that I'll go back and I'll modify every year as I decide what becomes more important for them to know about me and less important. Um so it tells them about me. It also tells them a little bit about my philosophy regarding working with seventh graders because seventh grade is probably the most challenging year of school for a lot of kids. And then you add in the fact that I have a lot of kids who live in poverty and have come from other countries and have all kinds of things that are going on in their heads outside of school. So I try to acknowledge that as much as possible to let them know that I'm aware of it uh, and that they should let me know of anything specific. I spend a day thinking about what do different forms of classwork look like and sound like. So we'll do some activities where what are the characteristics of a class of all the kids doing independent work? What does it look like in the room? What do you see happening and what does it sound like? And then we do that individually. And then in small groups, we do the same thing for small group work. And then as a whole class, we do the same thing for, for work altogether. Um, and it kind of, you know, it's establishing the norms as we go. Um, I give them a guide Although I'm thinking I might modify this a little bit this year. I give them a guide of what's a, an excellent student. What are the characteristics of an excellent student? What are the characteristics of a great student, a good student, and just a mediocre student? I give them a, a list of quotes of advice from kids that I've had in the past. I've given them surveys and said, hey, give next year's kids some advice on how to do well in my class. And I'll give them that and let them pick their favorites and talk about it uh, with peers. 
Um, I, I, I love that idea, just to, to jump in. That's something I've never heard of before. I, I, I love that. I, I think it's also fun because then I get to go see, go through and see what they write about me at the end of the school. <laughs> yeah. um, sometimes they come up with stuff that I don't expect, and sometimes they come up with stuff that I do expect, and sometimes they come up with stuff that's like, okay, you just wrote da- that down because you thought you had to. Then we get into like organization. I, I focus a lot on on a binder that I use. I don't use a textbook. I have them just kind of build a textbook in a binder all year. So we we spend a lot of time working on organiz- organizational skills and setting that binder up. I give them a science survey that I actually got from a class that I took a few years ago, and it's just a bunch of statements about science. Like scientists can be religious. You know, it's the kind of thing that kids have never really thought about. And well, there's a a lot of scientists who are actually religious. They believe in God. The two don't have to conflict. And so we have a chance to think that through and talk about it. Laura, can I just say that when, when I said that I don't go over all the rules in the first day, the school I was at, you are required to cover the entire syllabus word for word within that first week. So I I would chunk it into days. So I don't have anything against doing that, but it can be a hard day if uh, if I mean, that's all a kid does all day. Go from class to class getting talked at all day. It can be really, you know, what have they really taken away from that day at the end of yeah. it? Yeah. I, I think especially in high school, that's something so many teachers just lose sight of really quickly because they see the students for, what, 50 minutes or so in a class oftentimes, um, and we just act like it's students' only class. And if they're sitting there all day in, in your class um, – they're probably doing that in five or six other classes. And man, I, I just think about if somebody put me through that now, I can barely make it through like an hour and a half meeting without like losing it. <laughs> I get so bored. So my first day, I usually um, go through the syllabus, but I do it a little bit differently. I actually give them an anticipation guide. So I'll pick out like the, the key things you're looking for. What's my homework? What's my breakdown of grades? What will I be learning? And so before I even hand out my syllabus, I give them the anticipation guide and they have to like circle yes or no based on what they think by just being in the classroom. And then such an English teacher. I know, right? And then they get the syllabus and then they can read it through and go back to the anticipation guide. So it's not me talking through it because I understand like they don't want to listen to me the entire class period. Um, the past couple years, I've always kind of changed up my first day activity, but the past few years I've been doing this like carousel walk with this different posters. And again, I cannot take credit for this activity. It's probably one of the most pinned things on Pinterest right now. But it's like, what, what should our classroom sound like every day? Uh, things like that. And, you know, why is reading important? And they work in small groups to write down any responses they can think of. They get like two minutes at each poster and then they move. And then at the end, when they've hit all the posters, they can go back and kind of reread what, we, what we've talked about. And then I'll take some of the key posters and, and put them into like a, um, a word cloud. So we have like, you know, some word clouds around the classroom to kind of touch back to throughout the year. Um, I'm also thinking about day two, doing like a book tasting with them and giving them different genres of books where they have to go through and kind of do a, a tasting looking at the front cover and the first couple pages. So that when I, you know, day three, when I expect them to have an independent reading book, you know, those kids who may be reluctant readers, you know, will have hopefully hopefully found something that they want to, you know, give it, start reading 
um, the day before. So they kind of get that first pass at, okay, I know I need to be reading, so this is my chance to find a book for the next day. Like Laura, I do a lot of the organizational stuff with our interactive notebooks and our writing notebooks. So we'll go over like, hey, we're going to get all of like proofreading marks taped in. We're going to get our non-negotiable norms for seventh grade writing taped in. We're going to set up our table of contents. We get all of that kind of squared away day three. And Are you in a Chromebook school? I am in a Chromebook school, yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, so their homework the first week will be to join Google Classroom and do you know a quick assignment in Google Classroom for me. Uh, week one of school will be their homework. And I also do a lot of procedural stuff. What do you do when you walk into our classroom? How do you use the classroom library appropriately? So it's all up to them to sign out their books, to check them back in and return them to where they belong. So we do some of that procedural work as well in addition to the basic like where do we go if there's a fire drill kind of stuff. I also do something for them to get to know me like 10 truths and one lie. So I'd be like, you know, I love cooking. I am terrible at knitting. And so they have to figure out like what is the one lie about Miss Mayo and then I have it do it with them with a partner. And then um, I do some baseline assessment work like writing assessment just so I can kind of figure out where they are and where I need to go as a teacher to meet them where they are, to bring them to where I need them to be at the end of the year. So hearing Laura and Jen talk, I realized that I did see, I did hear some similarities um, in what they were saying, although I think what my first few days like look pretty vastly different as an elementary school teacher, especially as an early elementary teaching second grade. I spend at least the first three days not doing any academics at all, really. Um, I spend most of those days establishing routines, class community, like I talked about before. It amazes me every single year, as much as I try to prepare myself for it, I always, you know, get to the end of my first day and and say, my students can't do anything, Um, just because I can see how I can take them to the end of the year and then to kind of have it backtrack to the beginning of the year. We go over so much the first day. We talk about really what you would think are really, really simple things, how you come into the classroom, uh, how they make their lunch choice. And at the elementary level, your lunch choice is the most important thing you need to do all day, I think, in their opinion. Once I start assigning homework, which is probably the third or fourth day, how they're going to hand in homework in the morning. When we establish our classroom community, we do a morning meeting every day, which I do the entire school year. But even establishing that, we bring our chairs over into a circle. We talk about how you carry your chair safely and place it in the circle, how we line up if we need to go to gym or to lunch or to recess, that kind of thing. We go, I give my students classroom jobs. We go over each job and, you know, this is how you do each job. I always find that All of these things seem to take forever. We might be going over one simple task and we'll do it. I'll model it. I'll have a student come up and model it. And then I'll have everyone try it. And it's just really establishing that routine and and kind of driving the point home for them. And it always amazes me that something simple can take up to 45 minutes by the time we've explained, we've modeled, and we've practiced. But I feel like it's important to model these things so extensively because of their age. And then I find as we do progress throughout the year, once we get a little bit down the road, what's once took us 45 minutes to do with a lot of modeling and explanation and practice, my students can now do independently on their own in five, 10 minutes. So that's basically what we do the first few days is 
any little thing that needs to be gone over, we model, we practice, we come up with our rules. Once I launch into academics, which is not until maybe the fourth or fifth day, even that's extensive modeling. You know, here's how we do a math lesson. I eventually do math centers with my students. And when we start introducing math centers to them, we'll practice each center together. And that might take an hour again. But by the time we get into math centers, they know that once they go to that center, they can do it in 15 minutes. So it's a lot of repetition, a lot of practice, a lot of modeling, but we get to a great place. And I think that the repetition is key and you can't be scared of that in secondary or high school in high school because I have my kids do things again. If they enter my classroom and don't grab their notebooks and sit down and get ready to write, then I have them get back up with all their stuff. They exit the classroom and they come back in and do it again. And so that's just a reminder of this is something that we do in the classroom and it's unacceptable not to do that. And they have to practice to understand that. I'm glad I'm not one crazy enough to make my kids go back and line out I line up if they don't come into my room silently and get straight to work I will line them up five times before we ever get going because if they're not going to follow those rules and actually get to work there's no point trying to teach in the first place and I think the the idea is it's an investment right I mean you spend a little bit of time to get those things right it prevents you know problems for the entire rest of the school year but yeah I'm I mean, once you let those things go, you let them start not doing the things that you talked about, everything starts to fall apart, I feel like. The slippery slope. Yeah. Michael, how do you, what do you do in those first five days? So day one, we do not, uh, I do not give out books or syllabus. Instead, we talk a little bit about what history is. And then it's a lot of just getting to know you. So I have them fill out, and I feel like a lot of the other teachers in my school also do this, um, fill out a note card of like, uh, who they had before, what their favorite place is, what the last book they've read. I'm just curious. I like to get book ideas. What are some extracurricular activities or jobs that they have? Where's the What's the longest paper they've ever written? What's their favorite television show? Again, I'm kind of looking for uh, new shows. So I thought <laughs> that that's good. Um, what might you need support in this year? And what else would you like to tell me? And so students fill that out uh, and they give that to me and then I can go over it. It also helps me learn a bit who they are. And then I share them a, that same note card from my perspective so they can kind of tell who I am. And then it's a short day. So that's pretty much what we kind of get to. Day two, uh, that's when I do do the syllabus. But instead of going over it, I give them like a scavenger hunt where there's very specific things that they want to know. They want to know late policy. They want to know makeup work and how that works and so it's a you know it's a scavenger hunt that they kind of use the syllabus to to deal with and that's been a lot that's been helpful and i don't have to you know read to them as you know we're advised to at one point Uh, i also make them think about their own organization because they're juniors students sometimes struggle with organization and since we are an ipad school i feel like not all of them are using some of them are using iPads, some of them are using notebooks, some of them are using a combination of both, just so they can kind of have an idea of where they're going to put things. I make them think about a plan. And then my big project, uh, which takes a couple days, so I have them do history. Uh, they need to bring in like five artifacts from a specific event in their life that they feel okay other students handling and uh, talking about. Then they give those five artifacts to another student who then picks up each of those artifacts, tries to figure out exactly what it is. You know, they write down notes about each of the individual artifacts, and they try to build a narrative 
as to what the event is that these artifacts are trying to tell. And then they have to identify what questions that they still have and where they could go for to find out more about it. And finally, they get their, you know, their, they get to hear what actually it is and they talk about what the differences were. And then generally we talk about what is history, how is history made, uh, and why is it so darn difficult sometimes? I love that, Michael. That's fantastic. And obviously from someone with a, you know, history background, social studies background, I mean, you're getting them to piece together evidence and ask the types of questions that they should be doing in their class all semester. But what I really love about it is you're doing it with items and things they can relate to right off the bat. I think sometimes, again, we can jump right into content and curriculum so quickly uh, that we're excited about and kids aren't necessarily excited about it. So you're getting them excited in the nature and spirit of history, I feel like. That's cool. Yeah, I I, I also love that you're involving their own lives. I think with whatever curriculum we're working with, if, if we're not giving them a voice early on and asking them about themselves, they might just feel like they're a number. And... And having some of those questions on that first day be about them and their extracurricular activities, just things they're interested in, I think that gives you insight into how appro- how to approach the rest of the year. So I, I love that idea. And so in, in my classes, I'm kind of harking back to my when I taught government. Um, I, I like to start, I, I always say like those first even few moments, like those first few seconds of your class are so critical in just like setting the tone for what things are going to be, the culture you're going to build. So I like to have a bell ringer up for the first day when they walk in. And I kind of stand in the hall oftentimes and just tell them the assignments on the board, um, your, your, your seat is already assigned and I have assigned groups. And I usually will start with a question. I remember one I used to use is, is our school democratic? Um, that was, the students had no problem getting into that discussion. They were super engaged and interested, and I taught government. So, you know, I'd come in a couple minutes later and I'd say, make sure you know what you guys all mean by democratic. What's democracy mean? And so that they would gauge in that discussion. And they had so many things to say about whether schools looked more totalitarian and like dictatorships and what that told us about our society, whether, you know, we believed to what degree we really believed in democracy. And so we had all these big discussions. But the thing for me is, is that's the type of, I wanted them to get into the big questions. And so we did it the second they walked into the class. And so, but I was also a real stickler about setting real high expectations. I walked around and made sure everyone's participating, everyone's engaging, no one's hiding in the classroom. Even if you're not comfortable talking big group right away, you need to be contributing in your small group. And I need to make sure that I can tell that your ideas are being expressed. And so I think setting those really high expectations for every single student was always critical in in the class. And uh, I always had name cards and made sure we got to know everyone's names. Those first few days, everyone had to say everyone's names when they were talking to each other. Um, I asked them to, you know, to say in reference of what Quinn said, in reference reference of what Jen said and they and they reference each other and we got all the names right. I think it's so important. Some students' names are constantly uh, mispronounced in yeah. school and and I think teachers kind of there's times when people giggle over names uh, saying names wrong initially and I think that's our own insecurity because we don't know what to say and I think that's very unhealthy in a classroom to laugh at a student's name. Um, so I, I mean I think teachers do it innocently, right? Like, oh, I don't know how to pronounce this and but take I, I think it's really important to figure out a way to um, let students introduce themselves. And the teachers need to get names right, especially if they're not a name that they're used to, um, because that's part of who, that's like who they are, literally. And so learning each other's names, g- getting to know each other, listening to each other. I don't 
I always found like telling personal stories or talking about things someone cares about was a better icebreaker than icebreakers, which can be kind of just like silly activities, right? So I like to, I love like, for example, talking, doing stuff like what you did, Michael, with artifacts. You know what I mean? Because that's very personal. And that's how you break ice is by just having real authentic experiences. And so... uh, Right. Um, I would, I would building that culture, that like safe, safe classroom that they can feel comfortable doing that. and that they all mattered. And, and so then one other thing I'll say about building that kind of culture, I'm not going to go into two. I, I would get to the syllabus usually in the second or third day, but I also would build a class constitution. We took like three days to do it, but we would do a part of the hour and then start delving into our content in which I always had like a quiz like the first week that was really hard. Um, I really believed in setting high expectations and scaring them a little bit uh, about the how hard it is academically in my class because it's always easy to ease off and get a little easier as you go. But if you set those expectations high, I want them. To, I always wanted them to say, "Oh, Krutka's class is the hard class." Because then it means that they're like know that they have to come in ready to work and 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 you know go home and and prepare for class and be ready when they came in. And so I'd always have some quizzes and other things early in the week. But I was also, one last thing I'll say about cultures, I was really big about also making them care about each other's accomplishments in the class. And I think so often school is individualistic. I get an A, you get a B, you get a C. I wanted them to try to get everyone an A. I told them that was a goal is for everyone in the class to get an A. And that if they finished an assignment to work and help someone, which by the way is a great teaching strategy to teach someone else, helps them in the end too. Um, And so building all of that in the first week, I really looked to make sure that all of that happened in the first week. Um, And and, you know, we got to the syllabus and the rules and stuff and that all is super important too. But building a, a culture of high expectations academically and uh, just a community culture uh, where where people care about each other. Those were my main things. I guess maybe we could finish with just what's one last piece of advice everyone has. If you had to ex- tell teachers one thing about um, what you think they could do in those first five days, what's a big idea they could take away? Um, I actually did a blog post for our new member committee blog a, co- a year or two ago about something that I would give as that advice having to do with the old trope about not smiling until Christmas vacation. Um, I think that's absolutely bogus. My advice is remember to be human with your students right from the beginning. You know, you don't have to lose your humanity and your ability to smile with the kids to establish your presence and to establish your routines and structures and content. To bounce off what Laura said a little bit, I kind of laughed when you talked about the don't smile till Christmas thing, because it's true. Older teachers would say that to me when I first started teaching, and I thought that was ridiculous. Um, I think one of my biggest takeaways is, especially if you are establishing, you know, that classroom community, that that safe haven, whether your student is in your classroom for 50 minutes, however long your typical class period is, or all day, you need to establish a good rapport with them. And if you can't do that, the first day, then you're not setting up for a good year at all. So Jess stole my answer, but Sorry, I Jen. also think <laughs> great minds think alike. Um, I also think that you have to forgive yourself and be human with yourself. You have to go back into this year remembering that you need to be flexible and that you need to be a reflective practitioner. So if your first five days don't go exactly as you planned, that's okay. You still have 175 more days. And just to keep that mindset of you're getting better every day that you're teaching and just to remain being reflective about your practice. 
I think that's also important because if your first five days don't go as you planned, that might be a really good thing. You might get something great out of it that you didn't expect. Exactly. For for me, I would say uh, you really only get one chance to make that first impression for those students. I think especially if if you teach the first grade that's at a new school for them, they they come in not knowing those teachers. And for for you, you know, if it's the fourth time that day I'm going over the same kind of stuff, I want to be as excited and fresh and pumped up about my class as I want them to be. I, I think as much energy as I put into my students, I get that much back. And so don't don't be boring. Make make sure you're still excited by the end of the day. I, mine is, and I just thought of this, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> but if what? you build it together, they're already there. Oh, I like that. <laughs> uh, that's a thinker. Well, yeah. Dan, you have the last word. Yeah, um, I think... I'll, I'll finish with a question. Um, I sometimes like to ask my students to dream their ideal classroom. I think it's important to not forget our dreams for our classrooms, even if a dream isn't exactly what reality ends up looking like. So my, I guess what I would ask is, is what are your highest hopes for your class? How can you make that present in those first five days and, and make that your, your kind of goal? So, um, man, what a, this panel format is good. I, I feel like I'm going to listen to this one like five times to just pull out all the wisdom that I think our, the teachers shared here. Thank you guys so much for, for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you, because now thank I have you. ideas to take to my beginning of the school year. Exactly. I'm re-energized again. Yes. Yeah, same here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Do you mind just uh, quickly telling people how they can get in touch with you all? Uh, I am probably most available on Twitter these days. I'm at Jedi Kermit, like a Skywalker and a Muppet. <laughs> and uh, you can also buy a copy of my book, Play Like a Pirate. And uh, you can buy a hundred copies. I don't. I don't mind. <laughs> Laura, I'd be happy if you tweeted me. I am at L.R. Vago. That's L.R. V as in Victor, A-G-O. Yes. I can also be reached on Twitter, though I will confess I do not check it as often as I should. But if people tweet at me, I will get better. Um, my handle is at Jess Morningstar. Jess, I'm just going to tweet at you all night tonight now. Okay. Yeah. Everyone, everyone tweet at Jess to get her I might, I might go to bed at some point. <laughs> All right, Mayo, how do we get in touch with you? All right, so I guess my name is Mayo, like mayo and cheese, but it's actually not spelled that way. So you can find me at, on Twitter at jmayo, M-A-I-O, 88. All right, so thank you all so much for joining us. Um, we hope to continue the discussion online, and we'll all be tweeting at each other. So we'll continue the discussion there. Great, thank you. Hey, thank Thanks, you. Guys. Thank you. And to our listeners... If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you write us a five-star review, we'll read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42ThinkD. And until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>